I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sarah Moss returns to Little Atoms to talk about her chilling new novel, Ghost Wall. Sarah Moss is the author of six novels, including Night Waking and The Tidal Zone. Her accounts of her time in Iceland, Names for the Sea, was shortlisted for the 2013 RSL Ondati Prize, and she has three times been shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize. And today, for the first time not in connection with the Welcome Book Prize, we're going to be uh, talking about Sarah's latest novel, Ghost Wall. Sarah, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you. How would you describe Ghost Wall? It's set on an Iron Age reenactment in the early 1990s, and the narrator is a 17-year-old girl who doesn't exactly want to be there. Um, she's been taken by her dad, who's obsessed with the Iron Age, um, and kind of sees it as a point of origin for British culture and history. And as you said, it's it's a reenactment. It's not an archaeological dig as such, but it does bear some similarities to your your first published novel, Cold Earth, was set, although in much different circumstances, on an archaeological dig. What is it about that sort of like, I guess, that group dynamic that appeals to you? Mm, I think it's part, I mean, it's it's an old trope, isn't it? Take a small group of people and isolate them and you've kind of got a novel before you do anything else. It's partly that, but it's also... A sense of origins and the interaction of a past that always has to be imagined. I mean, the whole point about archaeology and particularly reenactment is that we don't have a written record of what people were thinking or feeling or saying. It's all got to be intuited from objects. And the other thing of note about Ghost World that's immediately noticeable is, and I guess especially pleasing for someone like me who has to uh, read a lot of books for these interviews, it's, it's, it's short. Yeah. Um, was that always your intention? No, um, it was just how it came. And I was quite surprised because I knew it was going quickly. I could see that you know, time was passing faster in the novel than on the page. And I got to the end and thought, well, that's it. It's done. And looked at it and thought, it's not long enough. That's not a novel. But it was done. So I emailed my agent and said, I've written this thing, but I don't think it's a book. And she said, it'll be fine. You know, send it to me. And I said, it's not a book. And she said, really, trust me, length isn't going to be a problem. Send it on. So I did. And it's interesting that certainly when I was writing academic prose, I always used to produce something that was far too short and then have to go back and dilute it and stretch it. And I've never felt I've been doing that with fiction 
but I do tend to write a first draft that's short and intense and then go back and put in more light and shade and space and reflection. So I'm wondering if I want to do a bit less of that going back and just leave it in that original intense state. Yeah, and you've clearly made the decision not to do that this time. It didn't feel as if I could. It wasn't really a decision. It just felt intact and finished. Let's talk about Sylvie, the narrator of the story. Mm. Who is she? She's she's a sixth former. She's from a fictional town a bit north of where I grew up, outside Burnley somewhere, not quite specified. She hasn't been anywhere outside the UK, although her dad is very interested in survival skills and wilderness, such as there is in England and the Iron Age. So she's good on the hills. She has a kind of intimate knowledge of the landscapes of northern England. And she's picked up a lot of her dad's knowledge of prehistory. But apart from that, she has very limited experience. She's pretty naive. She hasn't met a wide range of people. So her world is opening up a little bit on this reenactment. She's meeting students and a couple of academics and seeing perspectives on the world that she hasn't encountered before. And before we talk about Bill, her father, let's say something about <laughs> Alison, her mother, first of all. Mm. Well, we only see Alison through Sylvie's eyes. And Sylvie's at that stage of adolescence where her parents aren't really human. I mean, you know, they exist only in relation to her. And she doesn't want to turn into her mother. She doesn't have much time for her mother. She sees her as weak and silly. And Bill is Bill can be violent. He's a very angry man. And Alison has just learned to live with it, um, doesn't see herself as having any choice. And Sylvie can be a bit angry with her about that. And Bill, as you said, he's he's angry, he's violent, he's a sort of obsessive and and perhaps bitter character as well, isn't he? Yes, though I really didn't want him to be monstrous. It was important to me that readers could see why he's like that and what's at stake for him. There's a, I mean, I guess a sort of layer of this novel is a a, a sort of class analysis as well. There's a professor yeah. and his students. His students all, I mean, only really one of them's background is perhaps sort of sketched in, but, you know, we could assume at the time the novel is set that they're, you know, they they come from quite privileged backgrounds. Yeah. And Bill is a bus driver. Yes, yeah. And angry. I mean, he's he's of a generation where some of them inherited all the glories of post-war development in the UK and some of them didn't and he failed his 11 plus which meant he didn't go to grammar school which meant there was never any prospect of university he was effectively written off at the age of 10 and he's seen the places that he grew up falling into neglect and disrepair and hopelessness and he's angry and he's obsessed with um, recreating the Mm. distant past both as a an academic project, but also as an ideological project, as a sort yeah. of nationalism. Yes, absolutely. And he doesn't really see the difference. He's not able to cope with a kind of scholarship that's not also ideologically driven. For him, it's all ideological. But of course, this idea that he's, you know, that he's thinking of, the idea that somehow there's a connection to the ancient mm-hmm. Britons, there's, there's a people, it's a fantasy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was interested in that right-wing logic in which the further back you can trace your ancestry, the more right you have to be in a place. And I was thinking, what makes you British? Because clearly being born here isn't enough. We've seen that with the Windrush generation. Having your parents born here isn't enough. Grandparents, great-grandparents, you know, how far back do you have to go? go? Okay, fine, you take it to its logical conclusion. You end up in prehistory because it's just waves of immigrants all the way back, quite well-documented waves of immigrants. 
but even in prehistory, of course, we all came out of Africa at the beginning. There's no, there's no final claim. So Bill's never going to win. But he sees the arrival of the Romans as the, the moment of Britain's fall. You know, before that, they're authentic ancient British people. And then the foreigners come. Writing about, I mean, this type of masculinity, I was, I was sort of interested in the sort of contrast with Adam, the father in mm. the tidal zone, who's, you know, who's a, <laughs> I guess, for want of a better word, has, you know, is, a, is a much better man. Yes, yes. But also slightly agonised about masculinity, well aware of what he's given up and what he will always be judged to not have achieved. I think I'm intrigued. I mean, we've spent a lot of time in the last few years thinking about femininity and using feminism to interrogate models of gender for women. But I think we're only starting to think about it in relation to masculinity and men. And that's very interesting. But of course, the narrator here is Sylvie. Mm. And, you know, we're experiencing, although, as you said, it is an exploration of of Bill's masculinity and that sort of, you know, violent, there's descriptions of abuse in the book. Yeah. Of course, we're seeing that enacted upon Sylvie and Alison. Yes. And how, we don't really see how Alison copes with it, but we see how Sylvie keeps a sense of integrity through that and you know, what coping mechanisms she's developed. Well, I guess we see that Alison is coping with it by, I mean, just fading into the background, as you described. Yeah. And treating it as a kind of weather and in some ways becoming complicit. I mean, she says to Sylvie, if you didn't keep provoking him, he wouldn't keep doing it. But Sylvie knows that's not true, that nothing she could do really would, would stop her being the object of her father's anger. And of course, all of society does that as well. There's a there's a scene where she's describing one of her teachers, basically, you know, noticing mm. that she's got some bruises and saying, well, you know, I guess she, that's not surprising. Yes. But it, my memories, I mean, not that I was beaten up as a child at all, but there was a lot more violence against children around in my memory of the 80s and 90s. I think corporal punishment in schools was forbidden while I was in primary school, but we certainly had a head teacher in infant school who kept a slipper in her office and occasionally used it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was at school at the same, roughly the same time that yeah. capital punishment was abolished in this country and still have memories of, of other schoolmates getting the slipper or whatever. Yeah. Um, why it is set, the time period of the story is set in the sort of like roughly late 80s, early 90s. Mm. Um, there's only really a couple of things that, that sort of give that away, but, but it is sort of explicitly at that time. Why? I was interested in that moment, partly thinking about borders and boundaries and edges and walls coming up and going down and remembering the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of Eastern Europe, which were really important to me. I'd spent my summers going into Eastern Europe from Manchester throughout the mid-late 80s as a, quite a young child. So I had a, a child sense of the difference between being in Western Europe and being in Eastern Europe when the Iron Curtain was closed and a teenager's sense of what was going on as the walls came down and it opened up. I had a German boyfriend at the time, and I was in Germany with him when the Berlin Wall fell. And I was thinking about that moment of optimism in the early 90s, and particularly what it meant for my generation. I, mean, I was born in 75, so not very long after the UK had entered what was then the European community. And at school, we were always told that the future was European, and we should learn the languages, and we should understand the culture and the politics and the history, and this would be our future. You know, We would be citizens of Europe. And I can see now that that wasn't equally available to everybody, but it was available to me, and I did learn the languages, and I did work on understanding the culture and feeling European and spending as much time as I could traveling and speaking French and German. 
so it felt as if my own lifetime so far has been the span of Britain's engagement with Europe and I wanted to write about that. And of course, right at this point in history that this book is, is coming out, nationalisms like Bill's have yeah. basically ensured that that's no longer going to be the case. Yes, absolutely. So I was thinking about the workings of those two ideas about Britain and Europe, and the book is set in the shadow of Hadrian's Wall with quite a lot of reflection on the Roman conquest of Britain. And it is the arrival of the Romans, the beginning of British civilization. In the 19th century, the Roman Empire was often used as a model for the British Empire, and they were deliberately staffing the administration of empire with people who'd studied classics at Oxford and Cambridge because the idea was that if they knew the Roman Empire intimately, they'd be able to repeat it in administering the British Empire. Or is the arrival of the Romans, the arrival of the European foreigners and the end of authentic Britishness? There's a lot of political drama around Hadrian's Wall in that context. It mentions in the uh, the acknowledgement to the book that the actual, you know, the, the sort of idea for the story came out of a couple of literary engagements in Northumberland. Mm. Tell us more about that. I had a writing residency to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Hexham Book Festival. And well, there were several lovely things about that. Usually a writing residency will be a two week block. And I have two kids and a full time job. And there's no way I can just absent myself for two weeks to go off and write. And they knew that and they let me take it in three or four blocks of three or four days, which was actually much better because it meant that I'd take three or four days out of my life and go engage very intensively with this place and then come home and have two or three weeks of normal life where I could be thinking about it and then go back and do another little block. And that was very exciting. And I met a guy called Andy Bates, who's a leather worker and makes the handling collections of prehistoric objects for museums. So when you're in a museum and you see a little line of rust and it says Bronze Age knife and next to it there's a beautiful shiny Bronze Age knife. He's the person who made the beautiful shiny one. So he had a very intimate knowledge of prehistoric technologies and tools and craft that fascinated me and he knows a lot about leather which became very interesting to me. Again, thinking about borders and boundaries and edges, skin is the border between what's inside you and what's outside you. Walls can be a boundary between what's inside your country and what's outside your country. It's interesting to know, to know about you know the guy Andy, the expert in those Iron Age tools, and what you, what mm. you learn from him because the whole concept of reenactment, as obviously as portrayed in this story, but on a sort of wider level, seems to be faintly ridiculous. I mean, in a sort of obviously in a sort of you know didactic yeah. way for displaying in museums, that's a great idea. But the very concept that we can in any way yes. know these people seems sort of like slightly vainglorious to me. It is, absolutely. But when archaeologists are doing it, they know that and they're focusing on a particular technique. What is it like to make a flint tool? What is it like to use Iron Age methods of production for iron? It's not really the kind of dressing up and prancing about with swords that you see in living history exhibitions. It's, I mean, it it's a scholarly practice. Um, it's also, of course, creative and playful. And the people who do it will absolutely agree that it's just one of a set of tools for thinking about prehistory. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Moss and we're talking about her latest novel, Ghost Wall. And Sarah, Ghost Wall begins not with Sylvie, but with another teenage girl, although teenage obviously would be the wrong word in that era, (laughs) Um, way back in, you know, way back in the mist of time. Basically, we witness her being ritually murdered. Um, Who was she? What would they have been doing? There were bog bodies found in peat bogs across northern Europe, and they're usually people who appear to have been ritually sacrificed. They've been killed in at least three ways where any one of them would have been enough, bashed over the head, stabbed and strangled, typically. And then the bodies are often weighted down or sometimes fenced in under willow fences to keep them down, sometimes staked to the ground, as if to stop them coming back or rising from the bog. And it seeps into history. If you think about the Arthurian legends of the Lady of the Lake or the sword rising from the lake, that's a continuum of that interest in standing water. We still do it when we throw coins into still water. That's an echo of that practice of bog sacrifice. It used to be all kinds of precious objects, swords or jewellery or musical instruments, occasionally quite big things like carriages. In the National Museum of Denmark, they've got some braids of human hair that were thrown in and also people who were probably alive when they went into the bog, although only just. And we don't know anything about this except what the archaeological evidence gives us. There are a couple of Roman accounts, but they're pretty dodgy and about fourth hand. So we can only try to imagine what was going on. Again, this is it's a it's a great example of that. You know, we we can no way inhabit the mind. Physiologically, we were the same as these people, but yes. what 
these rituals were for i mean again you can you can say okay well they were they were sacrificing these people that seems quite plain but as you say there's like four or five levels to this that are just completely mystifying well they are but we're still harming people in quite similar ways we just do it out of sight so if you think about the technologies of violence that the uk is selling all over the world if you think about what happens during civil wars it's only the other end of the Mediterranean. It's not very far away. People are still being deliberately and publicly killed in horrible ways that exhibit appalling suffering. So I'm not sure we've actually changed very much. We just don't usually watch it, though some people do in films and online. There's a, a central image in the book of, of the idea of sacrifice and mm-hmm. um, a perceived ritual that those people, those Iron Age people, would deliberately choose to to put into the bog something that they really loved something that was a yeah. value to them you know perhaps some you know in, incredibly valuable weapon or tool or something this is sort of linked with i think um sylvia's internalized the idea through her father's violence that yeah. you only hurt the ones you love basically yes yes or that, that hurting people can be a sign of loving them in a way that you know, is going to take her a lifetime to untangle and I wanted to ask about the title Ghost Wall, which mm. I mean becomes there's a physical reconstruction of a of a historical artifact in the book, which you can tell us about what that is, but at the same time the very idea of, you know, you said it's set at Hadrian's Wall, the you know, the ghosts of history I guess around Hadrian's Wall could also come out of that title. Yes. And I'm also thinking about the Berlin Wall, and I was writing it while Trump was talking about his wall, the one that was going to be built on the first day of his presidency, and thinking that all the walls are ghost walls, really. Um, a ghost wall, there's, there's not a lot of historical or archaeological evidence for this, but there's a little bit, that when the Romans came, at least one group of Iron Age Britons put up a kind of palisade. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been anything we would recognise as a wall, and then put the skulls of their ancestors along the top of it to stop the Romans coming through. The idea being that the skulls of the ancestors were the most powerful objects they had. And of course, the Romans, I mean, they must have noticed enough to write it down, but it, it wouldn't work. You wouldn't hold off a Roman legion with some skulls on a fence. But I think that's what we're always doing with these boundary fences and walls. We're setting up something magical that's meant to write onto the land a story that we want to be true and it never is and i think when i first set out upon the novel after that first chapter i was expecting that there was going to be perhaps a supernatural element to it okay there was a ghost in the title and perhaps that you know that bog girl was gonna come back to sylvie in a more literal (laughs) sense but actually that is what happens really i mean the whole company are haunted by these figures from the past and their sort of inability to escape once they're isolated in this in this setting that that past is basically ever present yes partly because they're conjuring it on purpose i mean that's what they're there for to reenact or recreate a largely imaginary deep past can we talk a little bit about the landscape i want you're writing Mm. the sense of place which is you know, incredibly vivid. The the scenes of the, the the various members of the party going off and you know and looking for edible food and stuff. Descriptions of the moorland and the beach and the mm. rivers. Um, tell me something about writing the landscape. Oh, I always love doing that. I spent a lot of time as a child hill walking in northern England. My parents loved it, and I love it. I still do whenever I get the chance. And I memorised a lot of poetry that I used to recite to myself as we walked. And when I was quite little. 
so for me, writing and thinking about landscape and being in it are kind of lifelong practices. And I find it very useful to think about it on different scales, to look at things from very close up in great detail and from very far away. It's a way of keeping, I suppose, keeping sharp about how to how to think about landscape. And I wanted to just talk about writing about violence and abuse. You've done mm. in a number of your novels in different ways. And I feel like, you know, Bill is, you know, quite shockingly violent sometimes in this story. Yeah but never gratuitously so. Tell me something about, you know, how you approach writing about violence. I was trying to be very careful with that. You're right that I've written a lot about dysfunctional and damaging families, but I've never, I think, described physical violence before. Sometimes someone gets hurt between two paragraphs, but I've never really written it in detail. And it was hugely important to me that I didn't open up any space for any kind of voyeurism or titillation. I mean, goodness knows if people want to watch women being beaten up, you know, it's available on any screen, any time. We all know what it looks and sounds like. Nobody needs to be told that again. And I didn't want people to be thinking about what it looks or sounds like. I wanted them to be thinking about what it does to your mind. So I keep the reader in Sylvie's head, behind her eyes, between her ears, thinking her thoughts. And not probably so much in her body. I mean, we know what pain feels like. We can all imagine that. I was more interested in what being hurt does to your thinking. What other writers were you reading when you began thinking about Ghost Wall? Hmm, Tacitus. Um, a lot of, well, I, I mean, I researched it by reading a lot about the Iron Age and about bog bodies. You can't, of course, write about bog bodies without having Seamus Heaney standing at the back of your head somewhere. And finally, what's next? I don't quite know. I'm playing with a couple of things. I think I'm not finished with the Iron Age, but maybe non-fiction next for that. And then there are a couple of other fictional projects that I keep sort of poking to see how they're coming along. Okay, to finish off then, can I get you to read us a little bit of Ghost War? Yeah. I can do the very beginning, but it's a bit awful. They bring her out, not blindfolded, but eyes widened to the last sky, the last light. The last cold bites her fingers in her face. The stones, not the last stones, bruise her bare feet. She stumbles. They hold her up. No need to be rough. Everyone knows what is coming. From deep inside her body, from the cord in her spine and the wide bloodways under the ribs, from the emptiness of her womb and the rising of her chest, she shakes. A body in fear. They lead the fearful body over the turf and along the track her bare feet numb to most of the pain of rock and sharp rushes. Chanting rises. The drums sound slow, unsyncopated with the last panic of her heart. Others follow, wrapped against the cold, dark figures processing into the dust. On arrival, they strip her. It is easy. They have put her into a loose tunic. Her body is white in the pale red light, solid against the wisps of fog and the tracery of reed. She tries to cover herself with her hands and is not allowed. One holds her while the other binds her. Her breathing is accelerating, its condensation settling on her face. All of them are accompanied by their exhalations, slowly dissolving into the air. They turn her to face the crowd. They display her to her neighbours and her family, to the people who held her hands as she learnt to walk, taught her to dip her bread in the pot and wipe her lips, to weave a basket and gut a fish. She has played with the children who now peep at her from behind their mothers, 
has murmured prayers for them as they were being born. She has been one of them, ordinary. Her brother and sisters watch her flinch as the men take the blade, lift the pale hair on the left side of her head and cut it away. They scrape the skin bare. She doesn't look like one of them now. She shakes. They tuck the hair into the rope around her wrists. She is whimpering, keening. The sound echoes across the marsh, sings through the bare branches of rowan and birch. There are no surprises. They place another rope around her neck, hold the knife up to the setting sun as it edges behind the rocks. What is necessary is on hand, the sharpened willow withies, the pile of stones, the small blades and the large, the stick for twisting the rope. Not yet. There is an art to holding her in the place she is entering now, on the edge of the water earth, in the time and space between life and death, too late to return to the living, and not time, not yet, not for a while, to be quite dead. So I've been talking to Sarah Moss. We've been talking about her latest novel, Ghost Wall, which is out now in the UK from Granta. Sarah, thank you so much for coming back and telling me about it. Thank you very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.